0: So at the beginning of the retreat, we practiced to listen to the bell, bringing ourselves in, settling down. We sang the bell chants, remember them, body, speech and mind in perfect oneness. I send my heart along with the sound of the bell. May the hearers waken from forgetfulness and transcend the path of anxiety and sorrow. I listen, I listen. This wonderful sound brings me back to my true home. And then we practiced to come home to our true home—not just right here, but through our breathing. To breathe with the forest, yeah. Breathe with the green things on the planet. See that our breath is also the breath of the planet. Mm. We played the uh, I see you there and I am so happy game. And today I want to share with you another practice It's a deep-looking practice. When you look at the lake, you see the surface of the lake. You see the sunlight glinting on the waves. Some of you were just out paddling on that surface, right? You see the waves where the wind is dancing on the surface of the water. But the lake is very deep. But when we're here on the outside of it, we can't see how deep it is. We might have an idea, because maybe we learned how deep the lake was by someone who measured it. But, well, as long as we're out here looking at the surface, all we see is the surface of the lake. But we know that there's something underneath there. We know that the water goes very deep. So when we say deep-looking, it means that we're going to look beneath the surface. right? And if you were to look deeply into the lake, you would look down into the depths of the water, the stones and the plants and the fish that live down in there. You would bring your awareness down into those places. You look beneath the surface. So I'd like you to choose one of your hands, which one feels like the right hand, the right which one feels like the hand you would like to focus on, <laughs> whether it's your right or your left, and put the other one in your lap. And you take that hand up in front of your face so you can really look at it. Your hand is very interesting. I look at the surface of your hand. On the surface of your hand, there's skin. There are some fingernails. There are different uh, lines or prints, sometimes we call them, on our fingers and hand. You may have some wrinkles. You may not yet have some wrinkles. (laughs) There may be different colors of your skin. You see those colors of your skin? If you look closely at the surface, you can see many different colors in your skin. Sometimes we're drawing a picture and we just say, this is skin color. But look at your hand closely. Look at the surface of your hand closely. There are many colors that are skin color. Right? Many colors. Mm. Looking at the surface of your hand now, begin to move your fingers a little and feel beneath the surface of your hand. You feel the muscles moving in there a little bit, tendons moving in there a little bit. You might squeeze it tight, open it wide. And now we're aware that our hand is not just the surface, but there's something inside of our hand, right? And we might be aware that there are tendons, and bones in those fingers, right? You can't see them, but we know they're in there. We can feel them, right? Can you feel them? And there's blood flowing through your hand, we all know, because we've all scraped our fingers or our knuckles at one time or another, and we saw blood come out, right? We know there's blood inside our hand, too, so there's things beneath the surface we can't see. But I would like to look deeper than that. Look at your hand and ask yourself this question. You say this, you can repeat after me, but say it to you, say it to yourself. Whose hand is this? Whose hand is this? Whose hand is this? My first answer wants to be, well, it's my hand. It's my hand. And it's my hand. It's my skin. It's my bones and tendons. It's my blood in there. It's my life energy in there. It's my hand. But I know there's something more in there too. When I look into my hand... You know whose hand I see? I see my mama's hand. Yeah, I do. My mother is inside my hand. Your mother might be sitting next to you or somewhere else in the room, but your mother is also in your hand. If you were to take your mother out of your hand, could you have a hand? No, you need your mother in your hand to have a hand. Whose hand is it? Is it my hand or my mama's hand? (laughs) It could be my hand, but it's also my mama's hand. You know who else's hand I see in there? Grandma. Yeah. Wow, we're going fast now. Dad, grandma. Yeah, I can see my father's hand in my hand too. And I can see my grandmother's hand, both of them. You know, you have two grandmas, at least. And and they're, they're in your hand. Because if you were to take your grandmother's hand out Of your hand, you couldn't be there. Your grandmother's hand's in your mother's hand, and your mother's hand's in your hand. There you go. Grandma and mama, grandfather and father, they are in here. They're in your hand. You can never get very far from your family. (laughs) Even if you said, Mom, I want you to stay in your room. I'm going to the other part of the house and you're not allowed to look and see what I'm doing. Well, then you go to the cookie jar (laughs) and you open the cookie jar and you get the cookie out. You think, Mama doesn't know I'm getting a cookie. But your mama just picked up that cookie with you (laughs) because she's in your hand. (laughs) Wow. It's hard to do it. It's hard to be sneaky now, right? Yeah. Mama's in there, daddy's in there, grandmothers, grandfathers. There are many people, many of our ancestors present in our hand, our hand. So my hand is also the hand of my mother and father and grandparents and many generations. And they have done a lot of things in their lives And even though I think I'm very young and I haven't done very much, in me is the wisdom and experience of all of my parents and grandparents and many other people. So now I'd like you to hold your hand up again and look at it now. We've looked beneath the surface. You see the skin, the wrinkles, the flesh, the bones. But you also see in there your mother's hand, your father's hand. Now your mother and your father sometimes, they get a little bit stressed out. They get a little bit distracted and busy and sometimes they're not very nice. But sometimes they really they really are very loving and wonderful too. And, and when you're not feeling well and your mother or father is able to be there and care for you, to comfort you, it's the most wonderful thing. Please remember that your mother and father are not only outside of you, but they're inside your very own hand. So when you don't feel well, all you need to do is pick up your hand, look deeply into it, and let your mother put her warm hand on your forehead and say, It's okay, my child. I know that I wasn't always there for you when you needed, but right now, I'm here with you. For your father to come and say, I'm here, I will support you, my dear child. I know that I haven't always been kind, and sometimes I've lost my temper, but right now, I love you, and I care for you. And you can let the love of your mother and father and your grandmothers and grandfathers and all your ancestors be your strength. Be your support. Remember this meditation. Whose hand is this? Hmm. You try it. Put your hand on your cheek. But let your hand be your mother's hand. Let it be her love. Put your hand on your cheek, on your heart, on your shoulder. Let it be your father's care and his love, his support. Mm. Mm. So now put your hands, both hands out in front of you. Look at them one last time, you could say, Thank you, Mother. Thank you, Father. Thank you, ancestors, for being with me every day. And we'll listen to one sound of the big bell to let this deep looking meditation go. Mm. Small bells for you to stand up. And to say thank you to the Sangha with a bow. Thank you, community. dear friends it's so important that we take the time and energy in our daily lives to develop our concentration and our insight our concentration allows our insight to grow deep and our insight is needed for us to be able to live from that deeper place and not just around on habit energy yesterday i was speaking about it in a psychological model of like reshaping alaya consciousness you know to as things come up and things come in how do we sculpt that space so that we transform the habit energies and patterns turn them into a place where wisdom and compassion can arise easily yeah this is the, de- the development of our concentration allows our understanding to grow so that that work can be done uh, beautifully with skill and with appropriateness. When Thay spoke about looking deeply, it was very simple. And he would say something like this, he'd pick up his cup of tea, And he would hold it up. And he'd look at it. And he'd say, this is my cup of tea. And he'd he'd show you how to drink your tea mindfully. He would do it. And you'd get the transmission. You didn't have to say anything, right? (laughs) The way that he did it. I'm mindful of my tea. I'm mindful of drinking tea. That is drinking tea in mindfulness. I give you that example. You'd feel it. It would enter into you. And then he would take that cup of tea and he would say, in my cup of tea, I can see a cloud. And I can see the rain. And then he would take a sip and I'm drinking the cloud. I'm drinking the rain. And he would say, see, meditation is poetry. And the way that he did that, was so beautiful, so profound, you would get the transmission just by being with him. And he didn't give a lot of specifics. (laughs) And so I want to take a little bit of time to share with you some of the more specific details of how I have learned to do that practice to understand what it is to develop concentration and look deeply into something actually we've already been doing it a lot But if we take the exercise we just did with the children as an example of looking deeply, and we want to look at it in terms of meditation, we want to understand what has happened in that moment, what produces the insight in that moment, and what does that insight do? First of all, it helps very much that that took place in a Dharma talk, where everyone is assuming that I'm going to talk and they're going to listen. <laughs> it's a controlled setting, right? And that—that that is to say that when you really want to look deeply into something, you will need supportive conditions around you to allow you to do that. So that you're not distracted and busy, you can be concentrated at ease. And you take up, like bring that object of meditation Up in front of you, you take up the object of your meditation. What is it that you're going to look into? You might look into the flower. You might look into a mental formation in yourself of sadness or anger. You might look into your child, your friend. You might look into a situation in society. You might look into an animal, a stone, anything. Can be the object of your meditation. But it's important that when you do that looking, you're really there. You're there for that object. That's the first thing that happens. So just like the hugging meditation, right? You collect yourself and you bring yourself to the object. You only need to go that far. If we are really calm, very quiet inside, and we make ourselves present with something, often it will reveal itself to us without much effort at all, right? Often an impression of it one step closer to its true nature, sort of another layer, will peel back and we will see beneath the surface of it just naturally. And sometimes, with a lot of brilliance, a right? thing opens to us, we open to it. And together, we are open. Right? And in that space, it's not conceptual. We know, we understand. And then the hard part is how to start communicating that to ourselves and other people, right? How to find words, and actions that manifest that. But we can also come towards an object of meditation with a a refined effort in the way that we think towards it. We bring our intention and our thoughts towards something. This is called contemplative meditation, where we contemplate an object. So in that space of connecting especially if your mind isn't entirely still, right? You can give it something to do which brings you towards the depths or what's beneath the surface of that object. Uh, we don't just have to wait passively. We can continue our work of entering in. Our thinking is one of the most beautiful parts of our being as humans. I know that in Zen Buddhism and meditation and in general, where, you know, thinking has a bad rap. <laughs> if you don't think. Think as little as possible. Slow, still your mind. Uh, but our thoughts are very powerful. They are actions. These, these, they are our intentions taking shape, right? Inside of us. And they, they are formed into concepts. And those concepts can reach out into the world. They can also reach in. To look deeply into something, we strive to use the insight that is already there to guide our thoughts, right? The insight that is there from our ancestral teachers comes in many different forms. In the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, he uses the words interbeing and impermanence. Actually, these are words that come right out of the Buddha's teaching 2,600 years ago. We heard some of them in the discourse, the three Dharma seals, earlier in the retreat. The use of these words. These are doorways into understanding, right? So when we've established that connection and we are there, we turn the faculty of our thinking our intentions towards the object of our meditation and we shape certain thoughts using eyes of interbeing, eyes of impermanence. That means to look in and see what has come together to manifest this object. What are all the different things that come together to manifest this object? And how have things changed and transformed in order to become this? That's impermanence right, the change, the transformation. And it can be, in the past, how has it happened? It can be, you can understand something by looking forward to, into the future, using your conceptual knowledge of how things work, right, to dive in, to see the world in a grain of sand. It's not just Buddhism we're working with here, right? This is human understanding of the human experience, We look in. We invite those eyes. And that's what's meant by the expression, uh, what are you made of? What are you made of? It's to invite that way of looking, to see all the things that come together. So when we looked at the hand, right? We look at the hand, and we can see the hand is made of skin and all these things that are apparent, the appearance on the surface. Laksana, signs, marks. This appears just to be skin. Those appear to be waves, right? But when you look deeply, you see more, right? You see the substance underneath. And if you look with eyes of impermanence and interbeing, that's when you start to see things like your mother, your father, your ancestors in your hand. You can also see your children in your hands. And they don't necessarily have to be manifested as little beings running around, right? We have many different kinds of children and you can look into your hands and see all these things because you invite the eyes of interbeing and impermanence. What are you made of? Where do you come from? Where are you going? Philosophical questions? No. no. This is a practical investigation into the reality of your experience who am I whose hand is this sounds like some speculative thing no, you are looking deeply you are recognizing things that are actually there so when you ask those questions your mind engages to answer them and a thought will come up my mother is in my hand Yeah, of course she's there. Can't take her out, right? Mm -hmm. So, that thought is there. For this to be more than a thought, though, for it to be a contemplative meditation that opens you on all the layers of your being to the reality of the presence of your mother in your hand, you need a little more than just that idea. You need to make space in and around that idea. Allow yourself to feel, to integrate what the idea means. On the surface of things, we have an appearance, inside is what they mean, right? And we need to allow the meaning of those words to take shape in us, to feel it. Sometimes we call them felt thoughts, right? Where it seems as though the layers of your being come together, your body, your feeling, your thinking, and your awareness, all are there. And your mother really lives in your hand. So for me, this is an example. This is, you know, it's a breath. It's a full breath with that thought. My mother in my hand. And I reach out with my awareness to find her there. And the first time I do it, I might not feel much of anything. So give another breath. But you stay with that thought. You see, you give it space in and around to grow. You, you get, let your intention be willed a little bit. You bring you, you imagine and will yourself into that space. We're so used to being swept around that it's just normal to float. Here you really take a hold and bring yourself in. And then once you're in that thought, you let go. And let the meaning emerge. You don't know what that's going to feel like. There's no way you can. If you know what it's going to feel like, you're not doing it. Right? (laughs) You have to release you, you, you no longer grasp, you bring yourself in and let it take shape. You plant the seed, make that divot in the soil, put the seed in, cover it with soil, give it water, warmth, light, all the conditions, and let go. And it begins to grow, right? Make the space for insight to happen. And it takes that concentration and those conditions. Mm. So we have to release the grasping, the need to know, the need to figure it out in our mind. It's very hard to let go of that part of us. It takes training. It can take months and years of training to soften that energy in us. But it can be done. So that we no longer need to figure it out in our brain. It's like I gotta understand it all that we are comfortable bringing ourselves into that thought and releasing. And in that way, our thinking is not a hindrance, but our thinking helps us to enter deeply into the nature of things. Mm. There's a fun story about uh, what are we made of in the sense of identity. Mm. So one day, I was suffering a lot. (laughs) I don't know why, because I never took the time to stop and ask. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes we have days like that. It's just not going right. Things aren't going well, and we just keep plodding along. So, uh, this is when I was a monk, and uh, it was a day of mindfulness. Days of mindfulness were often challenging for me. The whole community would come together, and, and, uh, there were elements of that which, which were challenging, and I—I I wasn't particularly. I was tired out with long Dharma talk by Thai, and we were going on a walking meditation. And I was in my mind, just I don't know where I was. I was that well, I wasn't feeling good. I wasn't happy, and I did, realized at a certain moment that I was walking right behind him on the walk. I mean, it really didn't. Wasn't conscious effort. It just was there. And he walked around this big lotus pond in Lower Hamlet, and he sat down on the hill, and everybody sat down. Hundreds and hundreds of people all sat down on the hill to enjoy that warm late morning with the lotus flowers. And so I sat down, and he was next to me. I was often very close to Thai, so it wasn't strange, but in that moment I was like... "Uh." just kind of in my st- muck, you know and and uh, we're sitting there and he had been giving this Dharma talk earlier in the day one of these really deep ones looking at you know, understanding some ancient Chinese Zen patriarch sayings you know and uh, really beautiful talk that really, you know, cracks you open but well, I didn't do much with it <laughs> Well, we're sitting there. I mean, when we sat with Thai in those kind of moments, you could sit there for forty-five minutes sometimes. Everybody's just happy. He's happy in the moment. <laughs> the moment, I was like, <sighs> <sighs> "Lunch will be soon. Then I can walk back up to Upper Hamlet. Maybe the walk i will feel better on the walk." You know. And he's this is my enlightened teacher right next to me. He looks over at me and he goes, "Phap Hien." That was my name in Vietnamese, Phap Hien. Fabian, He looks back at the pond. What do you see? And I really appreciate that he was reaching out. <laughs> I mean, that's how I experienced it. I really appreciated that he was reaching out. And I also felt that, you know, when a Zen master speaks to you, you really want to listen. <laughs> and I... I also felt that pull in me, like, I, okay, what's he, he's asking me, and also when, when a question like that is asked in that context, it's like you're put on the, the, in the moment to recognize where you are, and I looked up and I said, mud. He didn't blink, he didn't flinch. No, that was it. That was, was all he wanted to do was just invite me to come into the moment and actually establish a relationship with what was going on, to start practicing with it rather than just, uh, right? But in that moment, I saw mud. Everyone else is looking at beautiful lotus flowers, and I was just like, "It's mud. It's yuck." What are you made of? You're made of where you put your attention. Right? Why do you put your attention on? It shapes so much of your experience. In that moment, my attention was in a swirl of, you know, I don't know what, self-blah. And the invitation was there to step into relationship with the reality of the moment and then I could see that, and I could start to practice with it. But had my attention been focused more clearly, with more openness, given myself, taken advantage of the supportive conditions around me, which I began to do in that moment, right? everything starts to shift, and now you're made of something else. Your experience is made of that. That would you place your attention in? Hmm. Can we hear the sound of the bell? so much of the suffering in our lives is based on misunderstanding our misunderstanding of ourselves through our misplaced attention and many other things our misunderstanding of each other our misunderstanding of how things work uh, and interpersonal conflicts you can see very clearly the misunderstandings that's there and that's so much of our suffering and and uh, Misunderstanding what human beings truly need and in terms of basic necessities, in terms of respect and care, uh, recognition and things like that. And we cause so much suffering to individuals, to other species, right? So much suffering is due to the, our lack of understanding. So this practice has a great importance. And this particular way of understanding brings us deeper and deeper into an upright and um, beautiful relationship with all of life. It opens our hearts and minds, but it also gives us freedom from the suffering caused by the misunderstanding. If our suffering is due to misunderstanding, developing or correcting the understanding relieves the suffering. It's that simple. And the Buddha taught this over and over again if you look at something and you're attached and you're grasping onto it, we read about that and you believe this is the only thing that will cause bring you happiness, right? And then it changes. Well, then you suffer. Right? Or it disappears. You don't have it anymore. You experience loss and you suffer. Right? But you suffer not because the thing changed. You suffer because you were holding on to it. Right? Because you, you grasped onto it tightly. So is opening up opening and opening and opening up to make that space for our experience of interbeing and impermanence the ever-changing fluid nature of things the interwoven interconnectedness of everything make space for that and then we experience fruits and these fruits are the release of suffering we experience connection and stability instead of isolation and and uh, loneliness and anxiety we know where we are we know the planet we belong to and we know our place in it we feel that, we live in it we experience the the non-beginning non-end of things and that's a huge one and a lot of suffering we have is around anxiety and fear around loss Uh, losing something that's important to us but nothing is ever lost. Even in the laws of physics, you, you find this, right? Nothing is ever lost. There's only transformation and continuation, right? And it's our inability to keep up with that transformation that causes us to experience loss, losing something, right? And I don't mean that in a cold, dry, analytical way, but it's a very true experience for me. When you look at a leaf, and you contemplate a leaf, as it bursts out of the twig in the spring, many of them are happening around us now. It's wonderful on the bushes around as you walk by. You see these little green sprouts of leaf starting to uncurl and furl themselves. And in that moment, we see the leaf, right? For the first time this season, this year, we see the leaf revealing itself. It's like the birth of a leaf, right, out of the twig. And in our mind, there may be the assumption there that that's the beginning of the leaf. But if we look deeply, right, we can see that that's not really the beginning of the leaf. The leaf began some other time, if you can find it. I haven't yet found it. The beginning of the leaf hard to say but there are so many conditions you can see coming together not just recently over the winter and such that are bringing that about but you can go back further and further and where can you find the beginning of the leaf and the nutrients in the soil the carbon in the air the water the cloud the life energy of the tree the knowledge the wisdom of that species to produce like that there's so many different things coming together and at a certain point, it is revealed apparent to our eyes as what we call leaf, the sign, the mark, laksana. Right? But the deeper nature of that leaf is something else. Right? And it's certainly not its beginning when we first see it. But we're tempted to think that. And in the autumn, right after it's become deep green, it has nourished the, the tree with its with its life taking in the sun's energy and the and the carbon and oxygen from the air feeding the tree and the tree is feeding it. And there's this life of experience of giving and receiving happening and then the life forces of the tree draw inward towards the trunk and that leaf is left on the outside getting crinkled and older and discolored and and we start to see it aging, right? Sometimes a very beautiful autumn, it can be extremely beautiful. Where I live, people come thousands of miles to enjoy <laughs> the autumn, we call them leaf peepers. <laughs> people who come from far away to peep at the leaves. Right? It's a brilliant manifestation of change and transformation, but at a certain point that leaf is so dry and held by such a thin thread of life that when the wind blows, it falls. And we're tempted to say, ah, the leaf has died. And with that, its end. But it's not its end. (laughs) Because if you watch and you follow it, you see how it has, actually that whole process of decay that happened while it was still aging and changing colors on the tree is releasing itself into the atmosphere and still feeding its energy back into the tree. Its continuation is there and then it's crumbled into the soil and becomes the very soil that the tree draws up as nutrient for future growth. No ending either. So this way of looking gives us an insight into no beginning and no end. When we look at our hand we see that there is a non-beginning and a non-end there. My mother is in me. My father is in me. I can really live into that. I don't know about you, but I have found incredible comfort from this. In fact, I don't remember the... My father's still alive, but I don't remember the last time he touched me like this. The way that I can have him hold me now. So you can grow very far into healing and reconciliation by opening your eyes to other dimensions of reality. What is beneath the surface? And going deep like that. There's a woman in our community who has cancer. Started as colon cancer. Now metastasized in many places in her body. She's not going to live more than a year, they say now. She's a dear friend, she has a five-year-old son. She just turned 40. Her husband is also a dear friend. A lot of suffering. A lot of the suffering is due to the the treatment for the illness, the trying to delay the growth. So much poison, toxicity in the body that causes so many complications but we, 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 we make the, the judgment that that's better than going quickly. I don't know if I could make that judgment, but in her case, with a three-year-old child when she found out she had cancer, she decided to stay alive as long as possible. She wanted her son to remember her. But I practice a lot with her in this way and it's brought me very close especially to her son and her husband Um, also to her but to expand that looking into her because I am looking for that transformation and that continuation I'm looking in this way with eyes of no beginning and no end um, so that I can nourish that understanding for myself and for them and be present there without being overwhelmed by the sadness of these rapid changes. These are changes that we are all going to go through. None of us will live forever, right? And it's just happening in an untimely way according to our expectations, right? And I need to go beyond that in order to find stability. I use the teachings to go deeper. sometimes I reflect on her like I shared by her as an object of meditation and I reflect on her like that and I look at her just to open and keep acknowledging again and again because you know your mind wants to go into the suffering to keep opening again and again to her larger reality and then I write it because writing helps me to Clarify at another level what I have seen in my meditation. Mm. I have a letter right here. It's in pink to Annie. I haven't given it to her yet. But from a recent meditation, looking into her and her son, Freedom from fear, freedom from loss. That's the direction of this practice. That's synonymous with stability, right? And the capacity to offer one's presence. To be able to celebrate the life as we let it go. Yeah. There are many places in our society where we strive to do this. These teachings can help us go further many rituals rituals that we have around birth, growing, aging, and dying already there that we can enliven more with these teachings. I danced around the house a few weeks ago listening to one of David, David Maslanka's CDs. Just so happy that that could be in me. He wrote some very powerful music, very moving stuff. And for me that was an opportunity to practice letting his continuation be alive in me. Right? Not an end, not a loss. But a continuation, a transformation. And there's a poem I read the other night in Missoula. Love does that, Meister Eckhart, all day long. The little burrow labors, sometimes with heavy loads on her back and sometimes just with worries about things that bother only burrows. And worries, as we know, can be more exhausting than physical labor. Once in a while, a kind monk comes to her stable and brings a pear. But more than that, he looks into the burrow's eyes and touches her ears stops when the emotion comes I have to get it back again he looks into the burrow's eyes and touches her ears and for a few seconds the burrow is free and even seems to laugh because love does that love frees so you know who loved burrows Yeah. I adored the way that she cared for them. Yeah, and I feel that continuation in me. I also uh, have a very clear memory of her, Um, gathering us into her living room to play David's new CD. And the excitement she had. (laughs) Like, being able to celebrate this music that her love had created, her dear love there. And it just uh, filled me with that, like, a reminder of the importance of... um, being interested in our loved ones and giving them the time and energy, you know, that that cultivates you know the enthusiasm to like say I want to be a part of what you love and what you do, right? And I in that moment that's what I was seeing there. I thought it was exceptional, you know. And there there is Allison continuing in me. Right? reminding me in that memory and she continues there we look deeply, we can see those things and we don't need to experience uh, the full weight of loss we instead, you know, experience that that fragility of life and we can celebrate it with that open tender heart yeah mm. Can we listen to the sound of the bell? sometimes the presence of the Sangha looking deeply together can be very powerful in this way Uh, like at a gathering uh, to remember someone or to support someone a Sangha might get together to celebrate the life of someone who's passed on or they might get together to support someone who is ill but the way that the Sangha can share can generate such a powerful experience of that person, without them even being there, that it becomes so crystal clear their continuation and transformation is there. I've, I've met that experience in ceremonies for the deceased that we have done, even for our Sangha members, where they were alive in the room. That's so much more powerful than the way I could reflect on it myself. If then another person... Also brings them in, and another, and another, and another, and you create in that celebration of uh, seeing the transformation and continuation of that person in you and in your life. You 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 remanifest them right in that space. It can be deeply healing. And I've seen that reconcile family members who've been estranged for generations because they see this person in a new light. Uh, through the eyes of everyone else. We develop in that way an insight that frees us from the suffering of beginning and end, but it also is is non-discriminative. It just allows us to accept and hold a space where healing can happen. Mm. There are issues in our world where um, there The suffering is not like in my heart or in your heart, but it's shared among a great number of people. Issues of deep suffering, oppression, war, conflict, social justice, injustice, (coughs) the climate. And at these levels, this practice is very powerful. And our sanghas have the capacity to bring something to these issues that I have yet to see anywhere else. You know, when we sit together for a dharma discussion, how simple is that? Right? How easy it is to sit together with 10, 15, or 20 people for a dharma discussion period. And we have these very basic guidelines. We all also have the practice underneath that. But our basic practice and our guidelines for listening deeply, that is without judgment, without discrimination, to make the space that insight can arise. So simple. We create that container. And people who have come on retreat, who have never been on retreat before, at the end of the retreat, sometimes they share, I feel so at home here. I feel like I can be myself here. I mean, you've all heard these things, maybe said them. I can be myself here no one's judging me or making me be like this or like that I don't have I can really be in myself when I'm here and that that's a deep relief and it's healing this is a space of non-discrimination that we can generate and we can do it very easily we know how to do this and I believe that this is something that as sanghas we need to bring out into the world more widely um, to meet these issues that are so full of discrimination and suffering. To solve an issue where there's discrimination we need non-discriminative wisdom. We cannot solve an issue of discrimination and disparity by staying on one side or another. It will not work. It just doesn't make sense. We have to go deeper. We have to go beneath the signs and the marks and find out what are the conditions out of which both sides or the different sides have emerged and from that place we can hold the issue but we can't hold the issue from one side or the other so there's a question there in a social justice issue how do you raise your voice how do you speak up how do you pr- how do you participate When, when you can't, you have to come from a place of non-discrimination, because to speak up is to align yourself somewhere, right? And it's in our mindfulness trainings, in the five and in the fourteen, you can find it very clearly, right? How we are to remain in contact with situations of suffering, and and we are not to be passive in that sense. We are, we are to speak up, even if it threatens our safety. Mm. So how do we do that without taking a side? That's the question. <laughs> right? I think that it's not so hard to answer. <sighs> Who is our champion? That's an old expression. gonna solve a dispute. Let two champions figure it out. (laughs) And go with the victor, right? Who is your champion? That's the tendency. (laughs) That's the tendency, right? We want to go with the one that's going to, right? Champion our cause. I think that we can align ourselves not with sides in the issue, but we align ourselves with understanding and compassion. We align ourselves with universal principles and truths, those are not sides, right? And for progressive liberal people, this is extremely difficult right now, (laughs) because They feel very threatened. And for conservative, it's the same. Everyone feels threatened, right? And so you don't want to let down your guard when you feel threatened. But you don't have to worry about that with the practice. You go deeper. You go deeper. You have to trust in the wisdom and the practice and go deeper and release your clinging on to your rightness It doesn't mean that it's, again, like before, it doesn't say, oh, it's okay if those people do that. That's not what you're doing. I'm just not, I'm not going to fight against that by taking a side. I'm going to come to meet it from my understanding and compassion instead. And there's a difference. And it's subtle in some ways, but it's profound in others. To come from understanding and compassion, to... To, to manifest this universal truth is not to take a side. A humanitarian concern this is just not a side. Not unless you're talking about climate. <laughs> then you're talking about you versus the animals and plants, right? But at the level of social concerns between people, a humanitarian... Standpoint is not a side and we cannot allow ourselves to be put on one side or another. We have to stand on that ground and declare, no, this is for all of us. But you cannot say you're on a humanitarian side if you only advocate for one the well being of one kind of person. As a human from a humanitarian or a universal truth standpoint, we have to be able to take on both. We have to be willing to transform in that way. We have to stretch into a space which is challenging, unknown. Yeah. But we do it with our practice, knowing that each moment we bring ourselves into our lives with understanding and compassion, we are contributing understanding and compassion, regardless of what the result is. You know, we may not see the resolution of a conflict. Like I was saying last night with interpersonal stuff, you may not see things come to perfect harmony, but you have done your best to to water the seeds of goodness and truth in that situation as long as you could. That is the task. Uh, if I compartmentalize myself and stay on one side, and I keep that tension alive hoping someday the other side will break and I will be the victor right I don't think that's ever going to happen the more we pull one side the more we make another right and left they are of each other you take away the right there's no left or there's a new right and left we have to go to that next level and it's these teachings of looking with interbeing and impermanence that bring us to the next level like with my, as a parent, with my child, right? I have to be on, on her side, is one way of saying it, right? But what that really means is, where are we of the same? And if I go there, I can hold it. I can be in that situation. We are helping each other then. From versus, me the parent versus my kid, right? To we are with each other in this process that takes me going to a deeper level to hold both of us racial inequality is the same as long as we come from one race and its concerns versus another Right, we're just going to keep in the disparity we can call out suffering and call out inequality but we also have to go deeper to the place where we are all human beings and that's the ground from which reconciliation can truly happen And climate change, we have to go beneath that. We have to become one with the insects and the soil and the stones and the animals and the waters. We have to be a part of the earth. We have to recognize that we are that, and it is us. But the environment is not out there. And we're not trying to save it, but that we are the natural world. We are of it. And so everything that we do in our lives, thus, needs to support the whole planet, right? You see how that works. You drop down to the deeper level. When there's unhappiness in the Sangha, someone is not happy. We cannot say, well, they're just like that. They're just anxious. They don't get it. We also have a part in that. Right? We also have a part in that. What is the sangha doing, which touches the seed of anxiety in the other person? What is the sangha facilitator doing that makes the the person attending feel uncomfortable? We co-create that situation. Right. We have to go to that level to be able to see. Oh, I, I am a part of this situation. I need to go deeper and see. There is a. There is a. There uh, is a a deeper level of our consciousness where we're interacting. It's not just like, no, Sangha's supposed to be like this and I'll take care of it and the other person is like this and they don't need to worry about that or they're anxious and they're just over-anxious and they make a mess and you know, this kind of thinking is me versus them. It's got discrimination in it. We have to go deeper and we have to put ourselves into that story, allow ourselves to change and transform. There may be times where we have to learn to say no, or we have to say stop, right? But we need to do that with that deeper wisdom. To, to stay in the realm of whose fault, whose fault is this that it's like this? Whose fault that the situation has evolved? To me, that it's foolish. And if I catch myself doing that, I let myself know, Michael, you slipped. <laughs> you slipped out of your practice. You're now blaming, you're now condemning, you're you're, trying to make someone else responsible for something. And I want us all to have that sense of belonging, all to have that sense of participation. So I need to drop down. I need to include me, too. So that's another dimension of the looking deeply. It's not just to see all the interconnections out there, but here, too. Mm, There's a story in the Buddha's lifetime of a a man who uh, caused a lot of harm. His name was Angulimala. Mala, necklace. Necklace had a finger necklace. The fingers of people that he'd murdered. It's the kind of person that in today's world we would very easily say, and then they said too, this is unacceptable. Right? Someone who, someone who, who is so lost in their daily life that everything they're doing is to try to cause harm but somewhere inside that person believes that this is what they are supposed to do all that they have learned in their life has brought them to that point and Gulimala was such a man he had been conditioned somehow to believe that his salvation lay on this path and that he was beyond hope of goodness so this is the only thing to do that's where he thought he was and one day he made his way into the same area where the Buddha was. And the whole village is terrified. The murderer and Gulimala has arrived. All the houses are shuttered up and everyone's hiding. And people say to the Buddha, you should not and your monks should not go into the town for alms round, for the murderer and Gulimala is there. And it's dangerous. Your life is in danger. But the Buddha went anyway, because the Buddha practices deeply. He's not afraid, and he knows. He knows where he is in each moment, right? And his path is a path of understanding and compassion. And I, I imagine that when he found out that Angulimala was there for him, it was like a call, right? There is suffering here. And I know how to understand and be with suffering and transform it. I will go. And he went into the town for his alms round. And as he didn't encounter Angulimala in the beginning, and as he's finished with his alms round, he's he's leaving. Each house he'd gone to, people tried to bring him in to protect him. He said, no. And he was leaving leaving the, the village Angulimala spotted him and came running after him, calling for him to stop. And the Buddha just kept walking. And the stories are a little bit uh, otherworldly in the way they describe some of these events. Like Angulimala had to run like, I guess if he was running a million miles an hour for a long, long time, you know, to catch up to the Buddha while the Buddha walked. (laughs) You know, things like that. But that he... He gets to the point where he faces the Buddha. And he says, "Monk, I told you to stop, why didn't you stop? And the Buddha looked at him. And the Buddha said, Angulimala, I stopped a long time ago. It's you that need to stop. And this started a conversation instead of a conflict. Right there was no fear in the Buddha instead he looked at Angulimala and saw the possibility of a man suffering learning to understand himself his place his way and the possibility of him transforming he saw the buddha seed the buddha nature hidden in Angulimala he recognized this man has great capacity. He's just not guided in the right way. And he offered to guide Angulimala. And it touched a deep, deep longing inside him to live a beautiful and good life. Right? Not to live reactive out of the suffering, but here was someone who said, I can, I can help you. And I will protect you. And Gulimala, his initial reaction was, I'm beyond help. Forget it. You know, I'm beyond help. You can't help me. And the Buddha said, I can. And, and Gulimala said, yeah, but people will just come after me and put me away because I've done so much wrong. And the Buddha said, I will protect you. He didn't let go of his gaze of compassion. And Ngulimala Gulimala challenged it a few times. You hear that. He's saying, you know, you make an offer, he says, no. Like, okay, whatever. You know, then that doesn't work. The Buddha stayed there and met him again and again. I see in you the capacity to stop, to transform, to live a different life. And I can help you, right? And that that energy wrapped in Gulimala up in a question. And before the end of the day, he was shaved head in a robe, sitting with the Buddha Sangha out in the woods. The Buddha could go beneath the surface. He didn't see himself on one side or another side. He saw with eyes of understanding and compassion. And that's what he brought. He didn't say... You and Guli Mala, you will have to be punished for your sins, for your wrongdoings, right? And after that, maybe we can talk. (laughs) You know, which is where I'm here and you're there and, you know, if you prove to me that you're worth something, then then I'll take you up on it. He said, I see that you're worth something. I recognize your humanity underneath this facade of your angry violent life I see your humanity and he went there and Angulimala felt it I don't know that that will work in every situation but Angulimala felt it he recognized in himself through the Buddha's look the seed of awakening in himself He didn't have enough strength to go there, but the Buddha said, I'll help, right? I'll protect that too. And there was this training, this intense training that Angulimala went through to really try to get a hold of his karma and his his suffering. He did a tremendous amount of sitting in the forest and he wasn't allowed to go on the alms rounds in the beginning. And um, that was the protection. The Buddha was building up his practice Don't expose yourself. Don't tear down your concentration with all this input. Remember all the different ways that we feed ourselves, especially through the busyness and media of modern life. Don't tear that down. Build the concentration so that you can heal, so that you can develop your insight, so it can grow strong and imperturbable. And eventually Angulimala was invited to go on the alms round and when he did, the villagers recognized him, and they hated him, and they beat him. But he was strong, and he received that, but continued to practice. And the authorities came, and they said to the Buddha, "Their, their society is a little different than ours. There's <laughs> a different kind of respect between peoples, especially for the those of." Uh, that they would consider holy, spiritual people, have a very high standing and respect in India, and have for thousands of years. The king came with a lot of soldiers. We hear that Angulimala is here with you, and we need to take him. And the Buddha played with that for a while, sort of very uh, skillfully negotiating with the king to basically get him to see that well, if you were to see that this man, who had once been a murderer, was now transformed would you still you know, put him behind bars? The king said, well no if he was really fully and truly transformed then no I wouldn't have a need to. And the Buddha said here he is right here sitting right here beautifully, radiant peaceful that story for me is is incredibly powerful um, because it helps me to stay focused on those very important parts of our practice which bring us to those deeper levels beneath the surface and to stay with our understanding and compassion and not get caught in the I'm right, you're wrong, this is better, this is worse, right? And it's, that's a very different world in that story than the one that we live in. And yet the principles of that story, we can find them and cultivate them in our lives to be able to, to build a culture of peace with each other. Please, as you go out of the retreat, remember to protect yourself, to protect your your concentration, Your ability, your concentration is your ability to understand. Think of them as the same thing. And if you are lost in busyness and stress and worry, you are not going to be able to be concentrated. You're not going to be seeing things clearly. You'll lose that deeper truth. You'll lose sight of it until you calm down. (laughs) You can always come back to it, right? But we lose sight of it. It's there under the surface. It's what we all come out of. We are all sisters and brothers at that deeper level. And we lose sight of that. The busyness, the ups and downs, the stress. We need the space in our lives. So protect yourself from the stress and the worry. Reorganize your daily life so that you have time to de-stress and to touch the simple things Life is very simple when you get to the basics. Look at the natural world around us. That is our nature. Right? Society's pace is not our nature. Let us not be fooled. Mm. So implementing those tools that can help us to maintain that spaciousness, to touch that simplicity. Right. These seem trivial, but they're so important. What time is it? It's, you know, every fifteen, yeah. <laughs> every, every fifteen minutes you can have a bell on your watch, on your phone. And that can remind you every 15 minutes. This is a plug for Mike and Nicole because their clock's set at the half hour. Every 15 minutes. (laughs) Every 15 minutes we could stop for a brother too. Right? It will change our, our day if we do that. Finding those places like the contract with your stairs. Right? Or... Wherever, however you decide to implement that practice, but to to take certain moments in your day that become moments of letting go of stress and tension and building that space of concentration so insight can arise. And going together with the Sangha to look even deeper and collaborate with each other. You know, The way that things have been operating, the way we have been doing things in the past, has brought us where we are now. So if we continue to do them in the same way, things aren't going to change very much. right? They'll change, but not much. Use our understanding and our insight to reshape our daily lives so that new fruits can come out of them. The last thing I would like to say is that all of that comes with that what? It's right back to the beginning, that wide open, embracing energy of mindfulness. It's kind. It's loving. It's calm. It cares. It's in our breathing, it's in our steps. Right? We don't have to go far. It's in the way we look at each other. It's in the way we listen to each other. But that energy of mindfulness has the capacity to bring together everything of the past, and the future, from all places into this moment. From the insight of interbeing. It's not about going wide out there into some absorption of oneness. but about being truly and deeply right where we are. Mm. Thank you.